thank you. Please be seated. Kids can go on to Children's Church. And go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Psalm 9. Psalm 9. If you're using a few Bible, it's page 451. Psalm 9. Psalm 9, Pew Bible, page 451. And let's pray before we study God's word. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And yet, we're blind by nature, so open now our eyes to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Lord, help us to see your glory in this passage and help us to see how it's speaking to us today. Give us faith to embrace us and change us, Lord, that we would be doers of your word, not hearers only. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Psalm 9. To the choir master, according to Muthladen, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. May God give us ears to hear his word. Adolf Hitler executes six million innocent Jewish men, women, women, and children merely for being Jewish. He then quickly commits suicide and never stands trial for what he has done. Would God be a righteous God to ignore such an atrocity? Joseph Stalin kills approximately 8 million of his own people. Through executions and forced starvation, he dies comfortably in his sleep in his mansion and is never held accountable for his crimes. Would the Lord be a just God to ignore such genocide? Pol Pot, the leader of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, he murders over 2 million of his own citizens, ethnic minorities, politicians, intellectuals, professionals, he dies under mysterious circumstances in 1998, but he's never punished for what he did. 
Again, would God be holy to ignore such a massacre? This last October 7th, the militant Muslim terrorist organization Hamas, they suddenly invade Israel and they go on this berserk killing spree. In a period of around eight hours, they murder 1,200 men, women, and children, the majority of whom are civilians. They kidnap, kidnap over 200, and they commit all manner of unspeakable atrocities. You've probably heard about these in the news. Truth be told, the majority of those culprits will probably never be caught in this life. Would the Lord be righteous to ignore such barbarism? The horrors that are committed on a regular basis in our world, they force us to ask an uncomfortable question. If there is no judgment day, if there is no time of final reckoning when we stand before God, could God be a righteous God? Would God be a righteous God? Could God be God at all? God's righteousness in some ways is a funny thing. When we're the victims... We don't want righteousness, we want mercy and grace. But when somebody else is the culprit, what do we want then? We want justice. I mean, just think about it yourself. If you accidentally killed somebody's dog, you'd want mercy. Please forgive me. But if somebody killed your dog, you'd want justice. Am I right? It's funny like that. I realize that God's righteous judgment, this can make us uncomfortable. The idea that every single solitary act of sin must be punished, that's disconcerting. And really, when you get down to it, the Bible stresses that every single thought you think, every single word that you speak that's careless, that must somehow be righteously judged by God. That makes us squirm a little bit, but that's exactly what the Bible teaches. God is a righteous God. As David said in Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God is righteous, and here in Psalm 9, God is calling us to worship him specifically because of his righteous wrath. I realize that's almost odd for me to say. When we think of worshiping God, we think of happy attributes, kindness, mercy, grace, love, and of course those are reasons to worship God. But very frequently, especially in the Psalms, we're called to worship God for his righteous judgment because he punishes sin. I realize this again is counterintuitive, but let's let the Bible tell us what God is like and how he deserves to be worshipped. Let me give you the big point of Psalm 9 up front. Your job will be then for the remainder of our time to evaluate whether or not this is actually what Psalm 9 teaches. But I believe the big point of Psalm 9 could be summarized this way. Recounting God's past righteous judgments builds confidence in God's future righteous judgment. I think David, David models this for us in this psalm, and the obvious application is for us to go and do likewise. Recounting God's past righteous judgments, how he has judged sin in the past, builds our confidence, builds our trust that that judgment day is coming when every single solitary sin will be righteously dealt with. Now, before we dive into Psalm 9, I want to say something about the structure and the outline of this psalm. The structure of the psalm is actually very interesting and very intricate. Um, and I want to show you this because this sort of thing is quite common in the book of Psalms. The Psalms are not these sort of just uh, haphazard things that are cobbled together, uh, you know, off the cuff. But they're incredibly carefully worded, intentionally worded, carefully structured. And this is everywhere. Take a look at this outline from William uh, Van Gemeren's commentary in the Expositor's Bible Commentary. Call up that slide if you would. As you can see, the psalm is basically two big parts, but uh, it's in a repetitive structure. So you've got individual praise then judgment on the wicked, then hope in God's just rule. Then those same themes are repeated, but in a more of a communal sense. You've got communal praise and individual prayer, judgment on the wicked, hope in God's just rule. You see that? 
Basically what he's doing, he's making the same three points twice, but sort of expanding them the second time around. You've got praise, judgment, hope, praise, judgment, and hope. This sort of structure is incredibly common in the Psalms. Here's something else I want to point out, and this you're not going to see from your English translations, but Psalm 9 is an acrostic psalm. What's an acrostic psalm? Well, this is a psalm where each different verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet going straight through the Hebrew alphabet. So all the, uh, the verse 1 starts with the Hebrew letter A, verse 2, Hebrew letter B, verse 3, Hebrew letter uh, C, all the way through the entire alphabet. Uh, this is actually very common in the Psalms. There are at least six of these acrostic psalms in the Psalter. Now, something I want you to remember is that all of this, this structure, this intentionality, uh, the, the acrostic, all of that is inspired by God's Holy Spirit. Though David, of course, is the one writing this psalm, the Holy Spirit is speaking through David. So the Spirit, at the end of the day, is the one teaching us how to process life, how to process our emotions through these very carefully structured and intentionally designed songs. Now, I want to contrast this quickly with the way in which most people think the Holy Spirit works. So many people, especially today, assume that the Holy Spirit works in this very spontaneous, kind of free-form, just you know, totally extemporaneous manner. I encounter this regularly. They think that it's a distinguishing mark of the work of the Spirit, that it's just off the cuff, spontaneous, out of, out of nowhere. I've even heard people criticize my preaching because of this. Why, why spend so much time studying? Why spend so much time planning? Just get the Bible open, let the Spirit bring the words to mind and preach that way, just kind of totally off the cuff. Now, now I agree that would save a little bit of time, but I don't think that's how the Spirit works, especially today. The Psalms teach us that God works through very carefully thought through, carefully constructed thinking, uh, through acrostics, through careful structure, through carefully detailed outlines. The Spirit can work just as easily through that, if not even more easily, than just if I got up here and flipped the Bible open and spoke off the cuff. And in reality, I think if you carefully plan and think through what you're going to say, I think that actually increases the likelihood that the Spirit's going to work through your words. It'll help you avoid a lot of false teaching. So never assume this idea that the works of God's Spirit are always extemporaneous, spontaneous, just totally off the cuff. Never think that too much planning or too much study might quench the Spirit. No, our God does things decently and in order. God's Spirit works through careful planning and structure and study. This is his normal way of working, and I think we see this illustrated in virtually every psalm in the Psalter. Well, keeping that in mind, let's dive now into Psalm 9. And what I've done here is, remember that, those six points and how they're basically the same three repeated? I've kind of synthesized them, so we're going to have just three points this morning and not six, since every sermon must have only three points, no more, no less. Not really. But what we're going to do is we're going to use a key phrase from each of these sections as sort of the hanger to kind of keep our thoughts hung on it. So let's consider first together, give thanks to the Lord. We'll see this in verses 1 and 2, and then verses 11 through 14. Give thanks to the Lord. Now let's begin in verse 1. David says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Now pause there. A couple of things I want you to notice. First, notice the parallelism in verses 1 and 2. What phrases are parallel here? You see them? Well, if you look at it, give thanks is parallel, parallel with recount, which is parallel with be glad, which is parallel with sing praise. Uh, the way in which this is structured, it's indicating that these are basically the same action. How is it that I give God thanks? 
I recount his wonderful deeds. How is it that I find my gladness in God? I sing praises to his name. You see what I'm saying? Now, this idea is found everywhere in the Psalms. How do I worship God? I sing his praise. How do I sing his praise? I recount his wonderful works. How do I find joy in God? You put them all together. That's the way in which we move our hearts to give him the worship he's due. Psalm 67, 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations on the earth. Another one, Psalm 92, 4, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your works. At the work of your hands, I sing for joy. One last one, Psalm 100, verse 2, sing, pardon me, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing. You see the connection? We sing to God to express thanks. But in giving thanks, we're finding our joy in God, and in doing all of that, we're exalting God and giving him the glory he is due. Listen to what old Spurgeon said about the role of singing in our worship. I find this helpful. He writes, songs are the fitting, call that slide up, songs are the fitting expressions of inward thankfulness. And it were well if we indulged ourselves and honored our Lord with more of them. If only we could determine the praise to the Lord, we should surmount many a difficulty, which our low spirits would never have been equal to. And we should be double the work, which can be done if the heart be downcast in its beating, if we be crushed and trodden down in soul. I realize that's kind of difficult wording, but get this next part. This will make sense. As the evil spirit in Saul yielded in ancient times to the influence of David's harp, so would the spirit of melancholy often take flight from us if only we would take up the song of praise. I know I've said this before, but I'm going to emphasize it again. Just maybe the reason why your Christian life feels kind of sterile and cold and dry is because you don't care enough to learn how to sing to God. Just maybe. I'm not saying that's everybody's problem. We have a variety of problems and a variety of temptations. But maybe the reason why, again, your, your relationship with God feels so cold and academic is because you haven't figured out what the right role for singing God's praises is. And if you take the time and pray for help to figure out how to sing God's praises, you'd start experiencing this joy that characterizes the Psalms. Just an idea. Well, continuing on in this same theme, in verse 11, David invites the entire congregation to sing God's praises with him. Jump down to verse 11. He says, Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Now, a couple of things I want you to notice here. First, we learn from this verse the way in which true praise is contagious, and we shouldn't be content until we inspire those around us also to join us in praise. You know that in a natural sense, don't you? If there's something you're really excited about, you just can't help but talk to others about it. You know, if you really love the Colts, you're going to talk to others about the Colts. Uh, if you really, uh, you know, love your job, praise God, but if you really love your job, you're going to talk to others about it. Uh, if you really love this Snuggie you bought on Black Friday, you're going to tell everybody, go down to Meyer, get the Snuggie. Am I right? You, you can't help but talk about those things that you're excited about. Well, the exact same thing happens with God. If you're truly grateful to God for something he's done for you, you will talk to others about it. You can't help but talk to others about it. You'll want others to get involved, and you won't rest until those around you are giving God praise uh, for the same thing. I just kind of wonder if this is why our evangelism is as, what's the right word, uh, ineffective as it is. You know, people can tell when we're talking to them, you know, you're not really very excited about the Lord. You want me to trust this God that you're not very excited about? This may be. And let's hope and pray, and literally, let's pray for one another, that God does give us a joy in God, an excitement in God, so that when we tell others about Jesus, that comes through and that they see that we really are excited about the Lord. 
And there's something contagious about that. You following me? But there's a second lesson I think we should learn from these verses, and this is just the simple fact that singing to God is commanded. You ever thought about that? Singing to God is commanded? This is not just for like musically inclined people. Uh, this is not just for guys that wish they had wound up in the boy band or something like that. No, this is a, actually a duty that's incumbent upon all of us who are Christians. And really what we do is we sing first and then we feel it later. Don't sit there and wait until you feel like singing. You do that, you probably will never sing. Instead, you start singing God's praises, and then what you'll discover is that the strangest thing starts happening inside of you. Before long, God's Spirit has stirred you up so that you're actually excited, whereas when you began singing, the joy wasn't there. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I know that many of us have experienced that. I'll confess to you, there are times that I show up here on Sunday where I'm like, oh man, we've got to do this again, I've got another sermon to preach. You know, I'm not really, you know, I'm just being honest with you, you're not really feeling it. But what happens is I get my mind in the Bible, I get my heart singing, and before long, I'm, I'm really, my, my whole attitude has changed by the end of the service. Anybody ever been there? This is actually the pattern of so much of the Christian life. We don't feel our way into our actions, we act our way into our feelings. You know, you don't wait till you're having just lovey-dovey feelings for your spouse to love your spouse. You love your spouse, and then the feelings often follow. So also, we, we don't wait until we feel like worshiping God to worship God. We worship God, and then so oftentimes, God's Spirit stirs our hearts so that we worship Him. Well, that's our first point. Let's move on to our second point. And for the second point, I've selected the phrase, the Lord executes judgment. We'll see this in verses 3 through 6, and then 15 through 18. The Lord executes judgment. Let's pick up in verse 3. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. Now, a few things to consider here. First, as you can see, David starts recounting the wonderful works of God. Remember, he said in verse 1 and 2, this is what I'm going to do. Well, here are the wonderful works that I'm going to recount. And interestingly, they're all about God's righteous judgment. Look at verse 5. You've rebuked the nations. You've made the wicked perish. You've blotted out their names forever and ever. In context, what David is talking about is God's righteous judgment on the Gentile nations surrounding Israel. You remember your Old Testament history. You know that God promises the promised land to Abraham, but the promised land is filled with the Canaanites, with the Amorites, the Hittites, Girgashites, all those funny names that you heard in Sunday school but didn't know how to spell. God leads Joshua into the promised land. He cleans house, drives them out, and then they take possession of that land. And what we're supposed to see is that God is judging those nations through Joshua by conquering the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, so forth. That's God's righteous judgment. Something interesting I want you to notice. See that word blotted there in verse 5? That same word blotted is used back in Genesis 6 of when God blotted out the human race in Noah's flood. Same word used for God blotting out his enemies. All of these were to see as God's acts of righteous judgment for which he is due glory. Verse 6, the enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. You, or pardon me, their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. As I was reflecting on this, I couldn't help but remember the Battle of Jericho. Remember Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho? They marched around the city for six days, and on the seventh day they blew their trumpets, and then the walls fell down flat, and that was the end of Jericho. And everybody perished there except for Rahab and her family, remember? Something like that is alluded to here. Now, before we go any further, I want to stress, this is, this is very important, 
God's righteous judgment is always in response to human sin. Never forget this. I mean, we can read about all these passages of judgment and think, man, God is cruel. God just loves torturing people. That's not the case at all. God's righteous judgment is always in response to sin. In most cases, God gave people hundreds of years to repent. He gave them day after day opportunity to repent. Turn from your wicked ways. Come to me. Turn from your wicked ways. But eventually, the window of opportunity closes, and then when the judgment falls, it's merely what people deserve. We're seeing the exact same thing take place today. Our world, our nation, we individually were storing up God's righteous judgment. By our sins, we're actually increasing our guilt before God. We're, we're simply building up fuel for the fire of hell that we will experience if we don't repent and trust in Jesus. But all this time, all this time, God is being patient. He's giving us, again, years, and for most of us, decades to repent. But for those who will not repent, who will not turn, a day of judgment is coming. A day of reckoning is coming. And then if we have not repented on that day, again, you'll simply receive what you've earned all along. Now, here's something very important to notice. After talking about these past judgments, what God has done, to the past, done in the past, David then zooms way forward into the future to Judgment Day. And, and really, this, this is the key idea from this theme. The certainty of past judgments guarantees the future day of judgment, which is to come. Look at verse 17. He jumps into the future. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. It's sort of like this. If God's got a perfect past track record of judging the ungodly, why would we ever doubt that he's going to judge in the future? You know, if he's judged Babylon and Egypt and Edom and Tyre and Sidon and Jerusalem, why would we suspect anything different when it comes to Russia or Hamas or the United States or you and me? Understand, this kind of thinking is found everywhere in the Bible. How can we be certain that a judgment day is coming in the future? It's because of the judgment he's already executed in the past. Luke 17, 28, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. One more, 2 Peter 2.5. If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to keep the righteous under, pardon me, the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. You see, it works this way. God does not change. His character is always the same. His nature is always the same. We worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. And that God clearly hated sin in Bible times. If he does not change, he still hates sin today. And if God destroyed the entire world in Noah's flood, if he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, if he destroyed Babylon and Egypt and Tyre and Sidon and so forth, then surely he's going to deal with Hitler and Stalin and Hamas and my sin too. So the lesson is I should repent and trust in Jesus as soon as possible, lest I too be destroyed in the wrath which is to come. You follow? Now, to build our faith in the Bible, to build our faith in God's righteous judgments, I want to remind you of just three of the acts of judgment God's done in the past. And again, these are evidences, proofs that judgment day is coming. I'm only giving you three of literally dozens of such examples. Read your Bibles. You can find more of these. But hopefully these will illustrate what I'm saying. Let me tell you first about the ancient city of Nineveh. Remember Nineveh? Call that slide up if you would. 
Nineveh was the city that Jonah was sent to as a prophet. In Jonah's day, they repented and were spared, but about 100 years later, they returned to their wicked ways, and God sent Nahum to judge them. Nineveh was an incredibly huge city, especially in those days, over 130,000 people. Now, what's that? Two, three times the size of Muncie? Huge city. Capital of the Assyrian Empire? But they would not repent. They were committed to their idolatry, committed to their immorality, and God judged them. And let me show you a picture of ancient Nineveh today. Just rubble in a field. Let me give you another example. I'm sure you've heard of Babylon. Babylon was one of the greatest cities of the ancient world by far. It was kind of like what New York City or Tokyo are today. It had the famous Hanging Gardens, which I'm sure you've heard of before, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. I mean, incredibly metropolitan, big, booming, rich. But Babylon was wicked and idolatrous. And after hundreds of years of patiently inviting them to repent, the window eventually closed. And judgment was promised in Jeremiah 25. And take a look at Babylon today. Again, God's righteous judgment. Let me give you a final example. I'm sure you've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were once these beautiful, lush cities. Genesis 18 describes them as like the Garden of Eden. Uh, so imagine fertile, green, everything beautiful. But I think you know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Let me read Genesis 19.24. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Uh, some sort of just like fire, like napalm from heaven, consuming everything and destroying absolutely everything. Now, before I show you a picture of Sodom and Gomorrah today, I want to share with you something fascinating I came across recently. Uh, this comes from a secular scientific journal. It's from Nature Scientific Reports. This journal is not even remotely Christian. Uh, you know, if you get into their archives, it's all, you know, weird stuff about weird stuff. Uh, but they summarized recently the archaeological discoveries that have been made in what is today Sodom and Gomorrah. And I find this utterly fascinating. If any of you want to look into this, I'll send you the link. Do be warned, it is in, like a technical scholarly journal that's 68 pages long using lots of words I'd never heard of before. Uh, but let me just read you the abstract because I think this will make sense. Here's the abstract. We present evidence that in approximately 1,650 BCE, uh, so BCE is like the secular way to talk about before Christ, BC. They don't want to talk about Christ, so they say before common era. And this is roughly the, the same time from Sodom and Gomorrah. A cosmic airburst, which is big words for like some sort of explosion in the air that we don't know what caused it. A cosmic airburst destroyed Tal el Hammam, a middle Bronze Age city in the southern Jordan Valley, northeast of the Dead Sea. The resultant airburst released around 12 megatons of energy, equivalent to around 1,000 times the energy of the atomic bomb that devastated Hiroshima. A citywide, roughly 1.5 meter thick, carbon and ash-rich destruction layer contains peak concentrations of shocked quartz, melted pottery and mud bricks, diamond-like carbon, soot, iron, and I don't remember what SI is, sphericals, CaCO3 spherules from melted plaster and melted platinum and a bunch of other elements. Now look at this next sentence. Heating experiments indicate temperatures exceeded 2,000 degrees Celsius, far above anything that could be artificially generated at the time. Amid citywide devastation, the airburst demolished 12 plus meters of the four to five story palace complex and the massive four meter thick mud brick rampart. Now, this next thing I find interesting, this is like technical speech, but it says, while causing extreme disarticulation and skeletal fragmentation in nearby humans. 
things that blew people to bits. And again, they, they don't know what, it's, it's an airburst. What's that? We don't know. And oh, oh, here's one final sentence that might be relevant. Tel el Hamam is believed to be the inspiration for the biblical city of Sodom. Sounds an awful lot like what we read in Genesis, doesn't it? Let me show you a picture of Sodom and Gomorrah today. I've been there, and it looks like the surface of Mars. Incredibly hot, dry, crusty, full of salt formations. When you see stuff like this, realize that is simply the judgment of God on display. We could keep going for, again, there are dozens of such examples in the Bible. God judged nations in the past for their wickedness, for their idolatry. Because of that, we have every reason to believe he'll do it again in the future. Listen again to Matthew 25, 31. I know that Drew read this earlier. But listen again. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Whenever you start doubting that that day of judgment is coming, just remind yourself of Egypt, Nineveh, Babylon, Tyre, Sidon, Jerusalem. And again, if God has judged in the past, we have every reason to believe he will do so in the future. Now, if all of this is true, how should we then live? Let me give you two quick applications, two applications. First, if you've not yet done so, take refuge in Jesus and be saved from the wrath to come. Right now. And we're talking about some super serious stuff, aren't we? And we're talking about fire falling from heaven on wicked people, and we're talking about the wicked people are you and me? So if you've not yet done so, take refuge in Jesus and be saved from the wrath to come. Right now, we live in this gracious window of opportunity. Right now, we are in this time of God's patience. God is being patient with us, giving us years and years and years to turn and to believe. And yet, no doubt, a day is coming when this window of opportunity will close, and it could be today. You could die, Jesus could return, but either way, all opportunity will be over, and then there will be only a fearful expectation of judgment. But until that day comes, here is the invitation, Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. If you have not yet done so, take refuge in Jesus. He will instantly, permanently save you from the wrath to come. He will instantly, permanently adopt you into his family and give you the Holy Spirit. And when you stand before God, God will not treat you like an enemy, but like a beloved child. So trust Jesus today. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on anything that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, talk to me after the service today. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus today. Quickly, second application. Learn from this psalm to leave vengeance up to God. Learn from this psalm to leave the vengeance up to God. I think we see David do this very thing in verses 12 and 13. Jump down to verse 12. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. Don't raise your hand, but have you ever been wronged by others? Abused by others? Afflicted by others? Bullied by others? Most of us are in that category. Realize the Christian response to that is never revenge. 
It's not to gossip or to hate or to slander. No, it's to leave it up to the righteous judgment of God. And if the judge of all the earth has judged sin in the past, you can be certain that he will make right whatever injustice has been committed against you. So leave it up to him. We're almost done with this section, but one more thing I want to point out. Look at the definition of the wicked person in verse 17. Did you catch this? This is so quick, but so important. How is the wicked person described? Verse 17, the wicked shall return to Sheol all the nations that forget God. Think about that. This is fascinating. In David's mind, the wicked person isn't necessarily a murderer. The wicked person isn't necessarily a drug dealer or a bank robber or some sort of con man, but what? The wicked person simply forgets God. God is just not a functional part of their life or thinking. The Bible actually stresses this regularly, and this is one point where we've got to let the Bible inform us as to what wickedness is. Wicked people are not just those going around engaging in this gross immorality. No, the wicked, they just don't think about God. They just don't care for God. God isn't on their radar. He's not in their worldview. They might be well-educated people. They might be clean-cut, moral, and they might be even more moral than we are. But when it comes to God, they just totally lack any internal fear of God. He's just completely irrelevant to their lives. Like Psalm 10.4 describes the ungodly. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Ask yourself, is that me? There is no room for God. I'm not robbing banks. I'm not cheating and stealing and killing people. But there is no room for God. Is that who I am by nature? If so, that marks an ungodly person. Listen to what the old Puritan John Howe wrote. To forget God and to be a wicked person is all one. To exclude God out of our thoughts and not to let him have a place there, not to mind or to think upon God, is the greatest wickedness of the thoughts that can be. And therefore, though you cannot say such a person is a drunk or he will swear, cheat, oppress, yet if you can say that he will forget God or that he lives all his days never minding or thinking upon God, you say enough to speak him under wrath. Earlier in the sermon, we talked about all those acts of genocide and atrocity. And you could have been sitting there thinking, yeah, God, get Hitler, get Stalin, get Hamas. It's good to judge those people. But realize again that if you forget God, if you just have no place for him in your thinking, no place for him in your worldview, no place for him in your life, you're among those who deserve the righteous judgment of God. But at the same time, you're also among those who God will gladly save if you'll but turn and put your hope in Jesus. So again, come to him today. We're almost done, but let me stress with you one final point from this psalm. Finally, consider with me, the Lord is enthroned forever. Verses 7 through 10 and then 19 through 20. The Lord is enthroned forever. Look at verse 7. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. A few quick things to notice. First, verses 7 and 8 are kind of the key verses of this entire psalm. If you're the type that memorizes key verses from Bible chapters, verses 7 and 8 are the ones to memorize, and I'd encourage that. But more than that, consider what David really means when he says the Lord is enthroned forever. I mean, what's that really mean? I ask that because at this particular time when David wrote this psalm, the world was still filled with sin and sinners. 
The Philistines were still attacking Israel from time to time. The Babylonians would soon invade and conquer Israel. The Assyrians were causing all sorts of trouble. Shortly after David and Solomon, you'll remember Israel has this kind of civil war of types, and they, they split, and then they both go into exile. It did not look as if God was on his throne. We see something very similar today. Our world is still filled with sin and sinners. Genocides like those I mentioned at the beginning are still a regular occurrence. You look at our nation and it looks like we're imploding. It's as if we're committing moral and spiritual suicide. Oftentimes it feels as if evil is winning, am I right? So how can David say the Lord sits in throne forever? Well, realize, brothers and sisters, David is saying this not because of anything he sees with his physical eyes. No, he can't see God's throne up there in heaven. You know, you look up in the sky, you're not going to see God's throne there. No, David is saying this based on faith. He believes what God's word says. And since he takes God's word by faith, he can say the Lord sits enthroned forever because he's walking by faith, not by sight. You see? We're called to do the exact same thing today. We look at life with the eyes of faith. With our physical eyes, all we see is sin and sinners. I mean, it is a... If you watch a lot of the evening news, it can get really dark pretty quick. I mean, be careful how much news you imbibe, especially compared to how much Bible you imbibe, because it can make you really depressed awful quickly. I can speak from experience. But if we look through the world with the eyes of faith, eyes informed by Scripture, we see things differently. Yes, we don't see Jesus sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, but we take by faith that he's currently sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. We don't see Jesus necessarily building his church, but we embrace by faith the reality that Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We don't not see the way in which all things work together for good, but we believe by faith that what men mean for evil, God means for good. And we walk by faith, not by sight. So brothers and sisters, let us do this. Let us walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray for this. Pray for this for one another. Pray for this for yourself. Pray for this for your pastor. That even though everything around us looks absolutely bonkers, we'll walk by faith and not by sight. The Lord is on his throne. Jesus is on his throne. Jesus is coming again. He will judge the living and the dead. And because of that, we can be more than conquerors in this life. We're almost done, but let's finish up with verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20, David says, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Now here David is simply praying for God to do what he's already promised to do. God promised the day of judgment is coming. David is saying, Lord, bring that day to pass. Judge those men. But, interestingly, put them in fear. Fear of what? Fear of the judgment day, so that maybe they'll repent before the judgment day comes. Now, in case this prayer feels kind of unloving or unchristian, realize we pray the exact same thing whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer. Whenever we pray, thy kingdom come, realize that includes Jesus coming again to judge the living and the dead. Whenever we pray the prayer of Revelation 21, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we're praying for Jesus to come again. There's really no difference here. And as the world gets crazier and wilder and more dangerous, I'd encourage you to pray along these lines. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Lord, don't let the wicked just have unbound victory in this life. Let the nations be judged before you. And, and by nations, you realize that includes the United States. We, we are not some, in some special category that we're not going to be judged for our sins. Lord, put them in fear. Lord, cause a fear of God to descend upon this nation. Open people's eyes that they might sense their guilt, their mortality, uh, the brevity of life, and be driven to flee to Jesus before it's too late. Pray these verses, brothers and sisters, for all the nations on the planet, including our own. 
Well, to conclude our time this morning, this then is again what I believe the big theme of Psalm 9 is. Recounting God's past righteous judgments builds confidence in God's future righteous judgment. Does that seem to be the theme of this psalm? Remembering how God judged the world in Noah's day, or Sodom and Gomorrah, or Nineveh, or Babylon, or Edom, or Jerusalem. Again, it boosts our faith that God will judge one day in the future. But there's one more act of judgment that I haven't really mentioned up to this point. It's one that you may have thought of. But where was God's righteous judgment expressed most severely? Where in human history was God's wrath poured out in its most intense, undiluted form? The Bible's answer to that question isn't the flood or the plagues or the exile, but it's the cross. Jesus' cross, that's where God's wrath in its most undiluted form was poured out. Describing Jesus' death on the cross, listen to Isaiah 53.5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In closing, brothers and sisters, this is what I want you to get. On the cross, Jesus suffered far worse than Egypt or Nineveh or even Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, on the cross, Jesus suffered far more than ever any sinner ever will in hell. For on the cross, as he's hanging there in darkness, forsaken by his Father, he's experiencing the wrath of God, the judgment of God, from an, for an innumerable number of people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, from all of human history, all of those who would ever put their hope in Jesus. All of that falls on him on the cross. And he endured that so that sinners like you and me could be forgiven and be saved from the judgment our sins deserve. So one more time, come to Jesus this morning. If you've not yet fled to Jesus for refuge, fled to him for forgiveness, come to Jesus this morning. He will completely save you from the wrath your sins deserve. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, thank you so much for the privilege of studying your word. Lord, we love your word. Lord, it feeds us, it transforms us, it renews us, it encourages us, it bears fruit in our lives. Thank you so much for it. Thank you for this certainty that if you've judged sin in the past, you will judge it in the future. And thank you most of all for the judgment that was poured out on Jesus on the cross. It's as if our judgment day has already taken place when he died for our sins. And we thank you also for victoriously raising him again. For those of us who know you, give us greater faith in him and in his work. And for those who don't yet know you, work in their hearts that today might be the day that they come to, come to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.